Good morning. Thank you very much for your welcome, and uh, thank you to Sarah for that introduction and reading. Uh, my wife Stella and I are delighted to be here. We bring greetings from Streatham Baptist Church in South London, where we're members, a um, church with over 60 nationalities in it, a uh, very vibrant multicultural church. Uh, Stella and I met in Malawi in 1981. Uh, we've been married 32 years, and we have two grown-up children. Um, my background, I, I spent most of my career working in international development. Uh, I spent five years as the international director of Tier Fund. And in 2010, I co-founded with Mandy Marshall Restored, which is an international Christian alliance uh, working to build positive relationships and end violence against women. And that's what I'm going to speak about this morning. And I've entitled uh, my talk, uh, Men Relating to Women. Uh, we've had International Women's Day uh, this week, uh, but one of the things we reflect on is that uh, relationships and, and indeed violence are, are never women's issues. They're human issues, and, and men and women need to stand together on them. So I want to talk in this context this morning. But let's start with a question. Um, what does a good man look like? Um, one of, one of the interesting reflections when you put up a slide like that is that actually our society very rarely even asks that question. It's much more likely to ask, what does a successful man look like? And a successful man, uh, as indicated by our, our newspaper headlines and media coverage, uh, would have several characteristics. He'd be handsome, probably. He'd be rich. Uh, he'd be powerful. Uh, he'd be a good sportsman and he'd be quite likely to have a string of women uh, surrounding him. But let me ask the question again in the church context. What does a good man look like? Uh, because, you know, Jesus was none of these things as far as we know. We, he wasn't handsome. He wasn't rich. He wasn't powerful. Uh, he wasn't a good sportsman as far as we know. Um, and certainly didn't have a string of women surrounding him. So... I think there's an initial challenge here, particularly for us men here, to think about what's our model of masculinity? What do we aspire to as a man? And how has the church, how has our society got so far away from Jesus as the model of the ideal man towards some of these other people who I would claim are less worthy of that? Just to give you a sense of where we're going this morning, I really want to talk under two main headings. I'd like to talk about how men relate to women in the public sphere, as it were, and then how men relate to women in relationships. But before that, just in terms of foundations, I, I take as a given, really, that the power of sexual attraction that God has placed in all of us as human beings and how powerful that is. It's God-given, uh, but it's, it's mighty powerful. It's a fire, isn't it? But secondly, another foundation is that, given that reality, we all make choices. We make choices about our own behavior, and we make choices about the cultures that we create. And that's also what I want to talk to this morning. Because the reality is that men have been abusing women in various forms throughout history and all around the world. And the Old Testament uh, has some staggering examples, which we won't go into this morning, of that abuse. And, and many of them will be familiar to you. And if we were looking around the world today, we could talk from sex-selective uh, abortion through female infanticide, through female genital mutilation, forced marriage, 
sexual abuse, domestic abuse, right through to the treatment of widows. There is this systematic pattern of male domination and abuse of women uh, throughout the world and throughout history. And you know, when Jesus came and when the church was set up, he intended things to be very different. Oh, this shouldn't be happening. Um, when Jesus uh, came and established the church, he intended things to be very different. Um, and the church is meant to be a place where gender relations, as in all other forms of relationships, are transformed. Will you warn me if it jumps on to the next slide and I'll, uh, I'll put it back, thank you. Um, and here's a couple of verses that give you some of, the, uh, some of the grounding for that and particularly for us men. 1 Timothy 5.2 says, um, treat older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So the church is meant to a place where, where men relate to women in terms of, of purity, in terms of honor, in terms of respect in all our relationships. And secondly, this challenging verse uh, for all of us men where Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who has looked at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And I think all men here would put their hands up and say we failed in this area and we continue to fail, we continue to struggle in various ways. But God has set the bar high because this is God's standard for us as a church. And particularly, God is calling on us to resist the objectification of women in all its forms. Now, if that was a challenge uh, when Jesus came, it remains a challenge for us today, doesn't it, in 21st century Britain? Because this is the reality we see around us. I don't know if any of you have looked at a, a, a website called Everyday Sexism. It's jumped on. Thank you very much. Um, a website called everydaysexism.org. Uh, it's just women telling their stories of what it's like to be a woman in our society. There are 100,000 stories on that website of basically women being abused by men in various forms. I think we men have no idea, actually, of what it's like to be a woman just walking down the street and routinely to either be catcalled or have comments made about your body or what you look like, uh, often very intimate comments, uh, to be subject to sexual harassment at work. This kind of routine way in which our society puts women down. And when women are in the newspapers, uh, we focus on their bodies uh, rather than their character. If a woman puts her head above the parapet in, uh, on social media, for whatever reason, you know, getting a woman's face on banknotes, she's going to be subject to a lot of trolling, a lot of it very sexually abusive. Um, and the tide of pornography, uh, men and women of, of my generation, many of you here are, uh, we're just completely unaware of what's available at the touch of a button on smartphones these days. This is not topless photographs. This is violent, abusive pornography, which our children uh, can access very easily through their phones, and which many men of all ages, including in the church, struggle with and are addicted to many. And I think we have to ask ourselves, what's the experience of women in church? We don't have time now, but it's a, it's a sobering experience for men to listen to the voices of women, just telling us, what's it like to be a woman in this church or in this society? Uh, it's a good exercise to go through. Um, and I know nothing about this church, but I guess in most churches, uh, you know, there are areas in which women feel they're being patronized, they're being perhaps passed over, 
or whatever, and it's something which I think particularly church leaders need to be very conscious of. Um, and I'm, I'm particularly concerned, as I say, about our young people uh, and what they're experiencing, what they're growing up into, what the models are for their relationships in terms of how we're treating women in the public sphere. So that's the contrast. And I asked uh, Sarah to read uh, those two passages earlier, and, and perhaps you could turn to them, um, if, if you've got a Bible, to go to Luke 8 to see, okay, well, Jesus spoke about this stuff, but actually he also modeled it. I think Luke chapter 8 is one of the most revolutionary uh, uh, little passages in the New Testament in terms of gender relationships. Um, it says, after this, Jesus traveled about from one time, town and village to another, proclaiming the good news. The 12 were with him and also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases, and then he lists them. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. Now, I don't know about you, but I have this vision of Jesus kind of wandering around the countryside with, with his 12 apostles, all men, in some kind of, you know, kind of roving campsite kind of thing. But what this passage says, actually, it wasn't like that at all. This was a mixed group that were traveling around. Jesus was comfortable for men and women to be together. He was comfortable to relate to women from all sorts of backgrounds, powerful women, uh, women who'd, who'd been through some pretty bad experiences. And he didn't feel phased by that. And most radically of all, have you ever noticed that? Verse 3, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. Jesus was a man being supported by women in terms of his ministry. What does that say in terms of turning upside down some of our preconceptions and our reflections on gender? And if you turn on to uh, the other passage we read at the end of Luke chapter 10 at the home of Martha and Mary, it says, as uh, Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home. Here was a rich woman, a powerful woman, a homeowner, uh, presumably on her own uh, with a sister. And there's so many lovely things in that passage we could go into. But perhaps the key one is Jesus says to Martha, you can be my disciple, you can sit at my feet, you're worthy of learning from me in the same way as men would be. And actually, Martha, that's the priority for women as well as for men. No distinction, to be a disciple, to learn, to follow Christ. Um, and the way he relates to those women, it's such a human story, isn't it? There's no sense of, of, of any kind of gender distinction here or, or patronizing. You know, Jesus was genuinely treating them with respect and honor. And one of the things you can look at in the New Testament in the th is, are the things that aren't there. You never see Jesus demeaning a woman, undermining a woman, devaluing a woman, uh, but rather entrusting women with roles, with testimony of the resurrection, uh, healing women, relating to women in so many different ways. This is radical. It was radical then. It remains radical now. I want to talk about relationships. Before I do, let me just say a little word about uh, singleness. Uh, because it seems to me that this is such a big and key issue for the church in our generation. We are a marriage-obsessed church. We are a family-based institution, but the pressure, particularly on young women, to get married is often extreme. Um, the New Testament, when you read it, actually seems to value... Has it gone on again? Thank you. Oh, it's back. Okay. The, um, oh, you're doing it. I've got, a, I've got a helper now. Thank you very much. Just save me. Um, when you read the New Testament, actually, it's incredibly positive about singleness. you read 1 Corinthians 7, you'd actually conclude that those of us who are married have kind of settled slightly for second best, but God forgives us anyway. Um, but that's hardly the, you know, the picture you get in the church, is it? Um, 
I, uh, Restored still has some desks in Tier Fund. They've been very kind to us in giving us accommodation. And I, I was in early the other morning, uh, last week actually, and I was chatting to a woman and um, she was saying to me very honestly, she knows about Restored, she said, look, I'm in my mid-30s, I'm just coming to grips with the fact that I'm probably not going to have any children. It's, it's likely I'm not going to get married. Uh, there just aren't enough Christian men out there. Um, and she said this very powerful thing to me. She said, I've decided I'm going to uh, enjoy my life 95% of the time. I'm going to celebrate and reflect and thank God for all the good things I've done. And I'm going to reserve 5% to mourn before God that I'm never going to have children and that I've lost something which I value so highly. Um, I don't know what percentage other single people put uh, in, that, in that category, if you like. But we need as churches to minister to single people, to single people over 30 who are still sexual beings, who are still wrestling with dating and relationships. It's not just young people. To single people who have amazing ministries but have no one to go home to, to support them. You know, the church needs to be that place. We are a family, you know, where single people are valued and loved and they can be themselves in our context. Jesus was single, you know, uh, need we say it all? And actually, we're all single. Uh, we're single before we get married. Uh, many of us divorced or, or, or widowed, single again. And actually, we're single in heaven. If you look at the long sweep of biblical history, you know, it, it, Jesus says, in, in, in heaven, we'll neither be married nor given in marriage. This is a temporary thing for this earth. We're, we're each individuals before God, unique in our characteristics, valued. That was just a little in brackets bit, really. Um, but let me move on to the next one. And this is really the core of what I want to talk about this morning, about relationships and men relating to women in relationships. Of course, Jesus wasn't married. We can't look at his example. Thank you. We can't look at his example. A, a little note to people, there's a little place on uh, PowerPoint slides where it moves on automatically and you need to click a button, which I obviously forgot to do. So be warned if you're doing a presentation. Jesus wasn't married, so we don't have direct examples of him in relationships. But it's interesting, isn't it, that when Paul thinks about marriage in Ephesians, he uses the example of Christ as an instruction to husbands. We often say in Restored that if men read the verses addressed to men more often than they address the, read the verses addressed to women, the world would be a better place. So men, listen to this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Um, Men in relationship to women are called to sacrifice themselves, uh, to model servant leadership, to model uh, what it means to, uh, to honor, to respect, to love their wives. And in Colossians 3.19, uh, Paul says uh, more briefly, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. There is no place for abuse in relationships. And that's where we run up against uh, the reality of what goes on around us uh, here in the UK. So um, we have a, a leaflet. I hope you'll pick one up afterwards. It says on the front, one in four women in the UK suffer domestic abuse. That is the reality uh, that we know from statistics. The second reality is that a huge proportion of that is hidden. Uh, this is a thing associated with shame. It's a thing associated with denial, uh, that if you are being abused in a relationship, very often you don't want to own up to it, you don't want to face the consequences of it, you've got a lot to lose if you do. Domestic abuse is not just about physical abuse, as the archers made so clear, it's about emotional abuse, it's undermining 
the, uh, the self-worth of somebody. It's about financial abuse. It's about uh, isolating someone from their friends and contact. It's about insulting them until, so that their confidence is diminished. It's about telling them they're no good. And you know, it's the tip of an iceberg of violence against women that we experience here in the UK. Some very shocking statistics. 230 rapes a day here in the UK. Uh, up to about two women a week are killed by a partner or a former partner. And a survey that the University of Bristol did of girls between 13 and 17, uh, one in four of them were experiencing violence in relationships and one in six of them had been forced into sex and most of these obviously young women below the age of consent. And you know, this is about, domestic abuse is about power and control. It's about someone dominating another human being. It's the complete opposite of what Jesus came to bring. It's systematic, it's a conscious decision. It's about male feelings of entitlement and power, that somehow I'm better, I deserve more, uh, and that woman should serve me or look after my needs uh, rather than me serving her. And then we came on to probably what's the most shocking thing in that context is that it happens in churches too. Restored ran a campaign called In Churches Too because we wanted to highlight that. I can't tell you how many Christian women come to us and tell stories of domestic abuse. We have a network uh, for Christian women who are affected by abuse. There's leaflets for that. If you know somebody, please do link them up uh, to that. The best evidence we have, uh, and we're currently doing a baseline of, of churches in Cumbria, is that rates within the church are similar to rates outside the church. Let me say that again. What evidence there is suggests that rates within the church are similar to rates outside the church. And if that's true, it means one in four women affected within our church communities as well. So that's a huge issue. And it's also a huge issue in the communities in which we minister. I don't know whether this church has any contact with local support services, with local women's refuges, uh, what's going on in the broader society as we're trying to address these issues. One of the things you'll find on the table is, is Restored's Church Pack. It's called Ending Domestic Abuse, a Pack for Churches. It's an excellent introduction uh, if you want to understand some of the basics, how you recognize abuse, how you respond to both abusers and perpetrators, um, how the scriptures have been used and manipulated by certain men to justify abuse. And it also talks about what churches can do, and we'll say a bit more about that. But there's some questions here, really. What kind of a church are you? Are you a church which recognizes that this stuff exists? This morning is a huge thing to do that. Because what you want to do is create a safe space in which it's possible for women to talk about uh, what they're experiencing. And if they do talk about it, that they'll be believed. I once met a young woman. She said to me, I was, I was brought up in a Christian home. I was married at 17. My husband was abusive, but I didn't realize it. When I started to talk to people about it, I was told that I should be a better wife, that I should forgive him, that I should give him what he wanted, uh, that it was really my fault, and that if I made more effort to make myself attractive, perhaps he wouldn't go uh, and did wo do what he did. That's about the worst thing we can do, to deny the reality of abuse and then to blame the victim for what is the responsibility of the perpetrator. And so often when men are guilty of abuse in the church, we tend to collude with them. We don't know what to do if the couple are still in the same church. You know, how do we, how do we cope with this pastorally? 
We sometimes counsel them together, which can also be one of the worst things to do. Because what's going to happen when they get home uh, and, and the man's been subject to this public embarrassment of being counseled with his wife and, and being told that he's an abuser? We need to understand how can we can deal with these issues safely. You know, if you're affected this morning, uh, don't come and talk to me and pick up this pack if it's not safe for you to do so. But do find a space where you can. There's a National Domestic Violence Helpline, 0808 2000 It's in our materials here. Uh, do perhaps speak to Sarah sometime when you're safe to do so, perhaps at another time, uh, to find out uh, how you can follow this up. And finally, I think the question we need to ask, in, in the church particularly, is how does God feel about this? When we started Restored, for me, it came on a day when I heard one woman tell her story of sexual abuse. And one of the things that really struck me was I just felt I got a little bit of God's heart when he looks down on the world and when he sees all of this stuff going on. Um, and it must break his heart. But you know, more than that, I really sense that as we look this stuff in, 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 the, in the face, there is also this calling on us to be a place of hope. Our favorite passage in, in Restored is Isaiah 61, and so much of it is, is wonderful. Uh, this particular passage, reflecting, I think, what you were praying for earlier, really, that, that God would give everyone affected by abuse a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, that the church can be a place of hope where women are, are listened to, they're valued, they're restored. Um, and that's our vision. Uh, in, in Restored as well. Um, we're an international Christian alliance working uh, to transform relationships and end violence against women. And, and when we started Restored, we had these two questions really. Where's the church and where are the men when it comes to ending violence against women? And that's what we sought to pursue. Because there's so much that churches can do and so much that men can do. I haven't really got time to talk much about the role of churches, but I mean, some of the things are, are, are up there. We've got uh, lots of information, as I say, in the church pack. I really encourage church leaders to pick up one of those. We've got 10,000 copies, so if, if you run out, I can get you some more. Um, you know, to say, okay, what can we do? How can we be positive in our teaching on these issues? How can we make sure our church is actually a safe space? How can we feed some of these issues into our work with young people? How, how will young people recognize what an abusive relationship looks like? How should they be treated? You know, a lot of girls are expecting violence in their relationship. It's become normalized. You know, the standards of what a relationship looks like are being set by pornography in our society. Girls are being called upon to do a lot of stuff they don't want to do. Uh, and many of you who work with young people will be aware of the culture of, of sexting, of just inappropriate relationships that the church needs to give positive teaching into uh, and also to stand against. Um, you need to be able to link people up to, to specialist services because even when the church is aware, there's a limit. You know, we're not experts. Um, and, and some women are going to need help from women's aid, from a refuge, from the police. Uh, and we need to be willing to call in uh, specialists when we've reached the end of our own capacity. Um, and we need to love people. We need to provide the pastoral support that women are going to need over many years. I should say through all of this, I'm talking about women. It is primarily women affected by domestic abuse. Some men are also affected. Uh, when they are affected, the stigma and the shame can be even greater. But the majority of cases are women.
But let me, let me finish by saying a little bit more to the men here. Um, because I think what struck us really early on in Restored is that if we're going to shift this stuff, it's so often talked about as a women's issue. You know, you hear about on women's hour. You go to a meeting. I go to lots of meetings where there are 48 women and two men in the room, you know. But this is not a women's issue. This is a human issue. And actually, it's more of a men's issue, really, because it's the attitudes and actions of men that have to change if we're going to sort this stuff out. Uh, and we need to stand together, recognizing women's leadership in this issue, but men standing alongside women to address this. And I, I honor Sarah for the lead she's taken in this. And in Restored, we have a, two co-directors, my co-director Mandy and myself, trying to model men and women standing together. And the good news is that most men are not abusive. Most men here are good husbands, fathers, boyfriends who want to honor the women in their lives and to love them. And you know, we need good men to stand up. So when we started Restored, we had this question, how, how are good men going to restore? How can good men get involved in this uh, and speak out and be part of the answer and part of the solution? So we started this campaign called First Man Standing. And we did it with Christian Vision for Men, if any of you know them. Uh, and the idea was, okay, um, Let's encourage men to stand up and speak out on this. And I went to a lot of meetings where I would say to people, you know, a group of men, will you be the first man to stand up and speak out about this stuff in your church, in your sports team, uh, in your workplace? Uh, and that's the idea of first man standing. You know, we're not going to be the last people dragged kicking and screaming into this. We're going to stand up and take a stand as Christian men because this is important. This affects the women in our lives. This affects women in our society. And we men are going to take a lead to stand up on this. So we ask men to, uh, to do two things, basically. Uh, to respect all women and to challenge other men. So respect all women in all the different dimensions of our lives. As, uh, uh, as consumers, what do we look at on the internet? As people walking down the street, how do we relate to women who walk past us? As people in the workplace, how do we relate to our work colleagues? As fathers, in the family, in the church, we want to be men who model this stuff and respect women uh, in all sorts of different ways. And secondly, we call on men, and this is a bit harder, to challenge other men, to be willing. If your mate down the pub tells a sexist joke or says, I've just, I've just smacked my wife or whatever, do you just feel embarrassed and say quiet? Uh, or are you willing to say, actually, I'm not with you there? You know, that's not acceptable. Are you willing to put a bit of grit into those male conversations that will change the culture, that will flip around, around. And others will come out and support you, but it's sometimes hard to be the first person to say, actually, you know, I'm not with you on that. We shouldn't be behaving like this, even if we're just men together. And I think in Donald Trump, we have, uh, in those tapes that were leaked, the example of what abusive male culture looks like. And we need to stand against it. We need to call it out. We've got some lovely examples of, in First Man Standing of doctors who've trained up on domestic abuse and been able to help their patients better. Who've men who've intervened, uh, often in public places, to, to stop abuse or to stop men calling out others. You know, there are great things that men can do. And if you're interested, I'd love to talk to you after. I'd love to get all the men to sign up to First Man Standing. And we ask you finally to sign up to the White Ribbon Pledge, which is never to commit, condone, or remain silent about violence against women. And if you go to our website, sign up to be a First Man Standing, you get a, 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 an email from me once every two weeks just talking about issues in the news, uh, trying to encourage men to be active in these issues. But let me end with a, a challenge, really, to each of us. There's 
a challenge here to the church. There's also a challenge to us as individuals. And I'd hate any of us to go away this morning without thinking of one thing that perhaps we could do differently as a result of what we've heard. Perhaps one person you know, one situation uh, you can pray for or you can act in, uh, one, one decision you'll change to change your behavior uh, or to challenge someone. What does it mean in my family? What does it mean here in my church with my neighbors, my attitudes, particularly the men towards women? Am I accountable? Am I praying with another man and perhaps able to talk honestly about some of the stuff I'm wrestling with? Uh, if you're addicted to pornography, am I getting help I need to address that? And would you be willing to get actively involved? We're a very small charity at Restore. There's only four of us. We need your help. We need your prayers. We need your ac action, like Sarah, speaking out, being willing to, to spread the message. We need your financial support. We're not a rich charity, and we, ne we need regular givers to support our work. Would you help us in some kind of way? So what I'd just like to do, uh, just to finish this morning, is just to have a moment of quiet for us all to reflect on what we've heard, and for you to ask, maybe in the quietness of your heart, what is God calling me to do in response to what I've heard? How can I respond to the word I've heard this morning? And may God bless you in that.